Psalm 119, verse 25. I don't know if you heard Eric's announcement this morning, but he said, if you want to be depressed, come back to church tonight. For those of you who didn't read the bulletin, that's the title, depression, because that's what our psalmist is dealing with here. So hopefully you won't be depressed by the time we finish. Psalm 119, verse 25. In a recent study by Gallup News, the percentage of U.S. adults who report having been diagnosed with depression at some point in their lifetime has reached 29%. That's almost 10 points higher than in 2015. The percentage of Americans who currently have or are being treated for depression has also increased 17.8%, and that's up seven points from that same time period. Both rates are the highest recorded by Gallup since it began measuring depression using the current form of data collection in 2015. And I suppose we could say that America is experiencing another Great Depression, but unlike the financial Great Depression, this is a depression of the soul. But thankfully, God's word provides freedom from depression and discouragement, and that's what we're going to look at tonight in Psalm 119. Before we dig in, just a couple of notes about this psalm. Psalm 119 is a 176-verse exaltation of the word of God. It's written in an acrostic format, meaning each eight-verse section is titled with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in succession. Then each of the eight verses in each section start with that letter as well. Because some of the content of each section doesn't always flow from one section to the other, it's believed by many that it was written over a period of time as the writer was walking through life. One section may deal with depression, while the next or previous speaks of him being filled with great joy. Then seemingly out of nowhere, he's under great persecution from rulers of kingdoms. Now the references to rulers and kingdoms are why most believe that David wrote this psalm, but we don't actually know for sure as the writer's never identified. Because the word of God is the central theme of this psalm, in it we see God's heart, and as such we find strength to carry us through trial and affliction from within, and we also find his treasure from his word to deliver us from enemies from without. And in the first eight verses we'll be looking at tonight, the psalmist is going to speak to us regarding a time when he struggled with discouragement, and I would go so far as to say we see a cloud of depression hovering over him. So let's dig in and see how the Lord delivers this man in his struggle that we might be comforted with the same comfort with which the Lord comforts him. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Verse 25. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So we're going to define a couple of words here and then we'll make some application. Soul here speaks of the heart, the mind, the will of man. It's the core in this case of his being. So he's clinging to the dust with all that he is. And clings means to adhere, to cleave, and to stick to something. Now, the interesting thing about the word cling, uh, did I skip dust? Yeah, this is important. Dust, uh, that's ground, dirt, earth. It has a spiritual implication, though, here. But the interesting thing about the word cling is that it also carries the idea of intense pursuit. So it appears that our psalmist is addressing a time when he's not only down or discouraged, but he'd come to a place where he's chosen to latch on to this discouragement. His soul is choosing to cling to whatever this rubbish, this dirt he's dealing with is. Spurgeon said about this verse, and I quote, whatever was the cause of his complaint, it was no surface evil, but an affair of his inmost spirit. His soul cleaved to the dust. 
It was not a casual or accidental falling into dust, but a continuous and powerful tendency or cleaving to earth. Have you ever been in a place where you've taken hold of depression or discouragement? Maybe a failure, a sin, where you've not just distracted by it, but you're feeding on it. And you, maybe you would say you're wallowing in it. Maybe something very unjust has happened to you or you're angry about what's happening in our country or maybe your personal life is tough right now. Maybe your marriage is tough. And so you talk yourself into deeper depression as you role play in your mind how things are gonna get worse and worse for you. And you feed your anxiety by meditating on the thoughts that anger you or maybe you're listening to others who feed your discouragement. When we do this, we're allowing our soul to cling to dust. We're in pursuit of our disappointment and our soul goes deeper into discouragement. Well, if you've been living at that place, the good news here is the psalmist gives us a way out of that cycle of thinking. Verse 25 again, my soul clings to the dust, revive me according to your word. So he wants the Lord to revive him, first of all. Revive comes from a word meaning to live, but it carries the idea of bringing something back to life, of repairing something, recovering and restoring something. So he wants to get back to a place that he once was. Have you ever been or had a time in your life when perhaps not just for a moment, but for a season, you've clung to or fed depression or discouragement and you've thought, oh, I just want things to be okay again. I want to get back to the experience of the vitality of intimacy with Jesus. And I would imagine that we all have. And it's when we're in that place that we need to do what the psalmist does. He asks the Lord to revive him. He wants the Lord to restore him to a place he used to be. And he acknowledges that this restoration will be found in the word of God. He'll be revived by what God says. It's the word of God from the heart of God that our psalmist seeks. It says, David says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Speaking of shepherds and sheep, I read not long ago that sheep not only eat grass, but they can thrive on it. What grass and water are to sheep is what God's word is to us. The Lord leads us to the nourishment of his word. And there, as David says in Psalm 23, is where our soul is restored. It's when we've returned to the green pastures of his word that we can truly lie down and rest. And so the writer of Psalm 119 says, Lord, my soul's been clinging to some dirt, to some rubbish. He said, Lord, revive me, restore me once again now by your word. So by way of encouragement, if you're clinging to some earth right now, if you're clinging to some sin, some rubbish, or maybe you're thinking about doing so, well then let tonight be the night that you take your heart to the Lord and allow his word to restore your soul. Amen? All right. Verse 25 and 26 together. He says, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. I've declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Now declared there is to intensely recount something. He's making a record. Um, ways would be, of course, his course of life, his journey. So he's been honest with the Lord here about his doings. He even admits in verse 25, as we saw, that in his journey, there was a time when he pursued and clung to some rubbish. And now he's noting that he's declared his ways to the Lord. He's told the Lord where he's at. He says, Lord, I've declared my path. This is what I've been doing. And then it says that the Lord answered him. And answered means to take heed, but because he's paying attention. We can flippantly answer people sometimes, can't we? Right, we're not really paying attention to the question, oh yeah, 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 but the Lord's paying attention. Did you know that when you're honest with the Lord, he listens to you and he pays attention? 
So I want to encourage you, be a person who declares your ways to him. Let him know what's on your heart, even when, or maybe even particularly when, you've been places you shouldn't have gone or done things you shouldn't have done or said things you shouldn't have said. He's going to listen and he's going to answer. And always include in the declaring of your ways your need for the word of God as our writer does. Lord, I've had enough of my ways. I want you to teach me your statutes, your ways, and your word. Now, interestingly, the word for teach here is literally to goad as with a rod, just as a shepherd would goad his livestock to keep them in the herd. It's said of this word that it speaks of a rod that provides incentive. And so he wants God's word to provide incentive, to goad him, which means to provoke to action. You know, sometimes God's word is like water, providing refreshment. Sometimes it's like a rod, skillfully and directly prodding us to stay on the path. Again, here the writer's referring to a time when he made bad choices. He's clung to rubbish. And so he recognizes his need for a little bit of the loving rod or firm direction of God's word to bring him back to where he needs to be. Are you willing to say to the Lord, Lord, do whatever prodding is needed in my life to keep me in your ways? While there may be some perceived risk with that prayer, I believe you won't be disappointed when asking the Lord to keep you in his ways at all costs. Verse 27, after a sip of water. He says, make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful work. So make me here is to cause me to understand. Uh, And it speaks of urgency. And the idea is we desperately need the Lord to open our understanding of his word. It's very similar to verse 18 of this psalm where he says, open my eyes that I might observe wondrous things from your word. It's an observation. If it's that important to the man writing this psalm under the leading of the Holy Spirit to ask for understanding, well, how much more than for us? I mean, according to Peter, this guy's writing as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 2, or excuse me, 121. And under that divine leading, he still needs the Lord to open his eyes. He still needs the Lord to give him his understanding. So this is a good reminder for us. Always, always ask the Lord to open your eyes to his understanding and to the intent of his word to you when you hear it and when you read it. And then one more thought on verse 27. It says, make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. So this man, he really wants to understand the way of God's word. He doesn't just want information. He wants understanding so that he can meditate on and live in God's ways. He doesn't want to live in the place that his own understanding would take him. And Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, uh, gives us a good example of this. You know the story, his brothers decide to kill him. One of them grows a conscience and they decide, well, Instead, we're going to sell him into slavery, thinking they're going to get rid of Joseph once and for all. Of course, this led to many years of suffering for Joseph, all because of his brothers. They intended evil against Joseph. But at the end of that story, after Joseph becomes a very powerful man, his brothers are believing Joseph is going to put them to death. But Joseph reveals that he was a man who meditates on the understanding of the Lord's ways and not on his own understanding. Listen to Genesis 50, 20 to 21. He says to his brothers, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So just as the psalmist, Joseph pursued the way of God's precepts. Therefore, he meditated on them and he chose to focus his heart and mind on the way of God's word, 
And so true was his heart's commitment to God's ways that he not only forgave his brothers, but he also provided for them, comforted them, and spoke kindly to them. Those are the ways of God's precepts. So as an application, regardless of the difficulties that eventually come your way, even the difficulties that come because other people sin against you, be encouraged to ask the Lord to give you his understanding, the way of his precepts, and on that understanding, meditate. Maybe it sounds like this, Lord, help me to see what you're doing here, what your word says to me in the midst of this struggle, and on that, I will set my mind and heart. And moving on, in keeping with the theme with which he started this eight verse section, verse 28 says, uh, it's very similar to 25. In 25, he says, my soul clings to dust, revive me according to your word. In 28, he says, my soul melts with heaviness, strengthen me according to your word. Both verses speak of the writer's struggle and God's solution. Looking a little closer at verse 28, melt speaks of weeping, and heaviness here speaks of depression. And I'm so thankful for this man of God who has no problem being transparent about the dark places to which his soul has gone at times. This should give us all so much hope when we get to that place. You see, the godly aren't afraid to admit they sometimes go through dark times of the soul. And we're all the same. We all find ourselves in dark places at times, and we all desperately need Jesus. So note what the psalmist does here when depression comes. He cries out asking the Lord to strengthen him by his word. Now, it may seem kind of simple, yet this is the cons- consistent instruction of the word. Why? Because God is faithful, and he will rescue you from your depression. If you will yield your heart to his heart, to his solution, his word to you personally. Now, depression, as you know, is such an effective tool of the enemy. He uses depression to shipwreck the faith of many and to destroy our effectiveness. He uses depression to lead to isolation and even suicide. Well, John 10.10 says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. It's the enemy who tells you or screams at you things like you're hopeless, you're a lost cause, you're never gonna be free of that sin, you will never be close to the Lord. You know that none of that is from the Lord, right? He does not condemn his children. What the Lord wants us to do with thoughts of depression is take those thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, he wants you to use the word of God to cast down the argument in your mind and the thoughts that are exalting themselves against the knowledge of God, against what his word says is true. And we do that by subjecting that thought to God's word. For example, if you're faced with thoughts like, I'm just done, I've fallen too much, I'm defeated, I would imagine there might be someone here tonight who feels that way. But you need to subject that thought to what God says. He says in Romans 8, you are more than a conqueror through him who loves you. That hasn't changed because you've fallen several times. That truth is consistent, it doesn't change. He always causes you to triumph in Christ Jesus. And nothing, nothing can separate you from his love that's in Christ. So sure, be honest with him, like verse 28 shows us, Lord, I'm depressed. I'm weeping, Lord. I'm full of depression. My soul is heavy, but pursue him still as the rest of this verse shows us to do. He says, strengthen me according to your word. Just as the psalmist does, we subjugate our thoughts of depression to the word of God. We replace the meditations of our heart that are destroying us with the truths of the word that revive and strengthen us, amen? 
Now, an important footnote, something that the psalmist doesn't mention here that he does bring up a couple of times later in this psalm, and that is he doesn't seek to go it alone. I think either Jeremy said it in his announcement or Eric during his message said the same thing. He doesn't seek to go it alone. He needs the encouragement of other believers. In verse 63 of the psalm, he says, I am a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. Now, the word companion there speaks of someone with whom you're knit together. Isn't that great? And the ones with whom the psalmist is knit together are those who fear the Lord and keep his word. And that's our Lord's desire for each one of us, that we be knit together with others who love him. In Colossians 2.2, Paul echoed this desire that the believers there in Colossae, and by extension, you and me, that our hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, he says. And that's under any circumstance, but if you're prone to dealing with depression or discouragement, I want to encourage you even more to get and to stay connected to the body of Christ. And in doing so, ask the Lord to knit your heart together with at least one other person. Sound like a deal? Well, back to our text. Verse 29 and 30. Remove from me the way of lying. Grant me your law graciously. I have chosen the way of your truth. Your judgments I have laid before me. Consensus seems to be that the way of lying he's referring to is his own. He says, remove it from me. And uh, this follows logically with this section. We've already seen how his soul is willingly clung to some dirt. He'd been in need of understanding. And he was at a place of depression, weeping and weakness. That's all connected here. And so he asked the Lord to take away any falsehood that he's clung to. It's a footnote. When, when we're willing to be at a place of clinging to stuff we shouldn't be clinging to, like abiding in lustful thoughts or living a lie, holding on to anger and unforgiveness, living in pride and arrogance. When we're living in that place of willful sin, it becomes very difficult to hear from the Lord and it hinders our prayers and our communion with him. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So by way of encouragement, if you've got anything going on that's hindering you, do what the writer does here. He chooses the way of truth. And notice there's God's part and there's our part. We ask the Lord to deal with it by removing it from us, verse 29, but also verse 30, our part is that we have to choose the way of truth. In other words, your part is to repent, to choose obedience, the way of truth, and God's part is to come alongside and to help with the removal of the power and the shame and the grip of sin. And one more thought in these two verses that shows us the, that we work with the Lord in repentance and dealing with restoration. In verse 29, he asked the Lord to grant him his word graciously, and that means in kindness and favor. And in 30, it says the psalmist lays that same word of God before him. In other words, Lord, tell me what I need to hear from you. I open myself to all you have to say, Lord, I lay your word, what you speak to me, right in front of me. And laid there means to level, to make it plain. And it carries the idea of yielding, very important. So he's not just saying he's looking to the word, but rather he's saying, Lord, I want to hear from you. I open myself to your word, and more importantly, I yield to it. While teaching of the word is essential, sometimes it's not more information we need, but rather we need to yield to the truth that we already have. So may we be those whose prayer is, Lord, I look to your word, and Lord, I yield to its instruction. Verse 31. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. 
the word for cling here is the same as verse 25. And in 25, he clung to some earth. He abided in, he clung to, even pursued whatever this rubbish was. But now in 31, he's abiding and he's clinging to, he's pursuing God's word. And I want to encourage you that if or when you're at a place of clinging to your sin, you can know that the Lord not only wants you to repent and be restored, but he's there to prod you, to encourage you, and to set your feet back on the rock. He is so merciful and ready to forgive. Just cling to him once again, as our writer's doing. And no matter where you're at now or in the future, by way of temptation or sin, it's never too late to cling once again to God's word. If you have breath, you can choose to repent of the sinful attitudes, the pride, the unforgiveness, the lust, and yield to, cling to, and pursue the word of God again, even tonight. Well, then there's another beautiful thing here. He's asking the Lord to not subject him to the shame of his sin. He says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Do not put me to shame. Now, when we've been in sin, we often leave a trail of shame behind us, don't we? And we can carry that shame with us as well. Also, when we've been in sin, we've given the enemy ammunition to rain even more shame on us. Even after repentance, the enemy will hurl thoughts on us like, you're guilty, look what you've done. And the thing in he's right, he's right. We are guilty, we should be shamed. The wages of sin is death, it's condemnation. But what does God's word say that, about that once we've repented? As far as our relationship to the Lord, there is no condemnation. The Lord will not heap shame on us. Psalm 32, five says he literally has removed the guilt of our sin. So as an application, if you struggle with shame, I would encourage you to reject those thoughts and to begin to thank the Lord that he's taken your guilt, that he bore your shame. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus despised that shame that was laid on him, that was our shame, he despised that shame, but he bore it nonetheless. There is no shame of yours that he did not bear. So thank him that according to Hebrews 4, 16, you can now come boldly before the throne of grace and you can receive the grace and mercy you need in your time of need. And boldly there, by the way, it means with confidence and assurance, which, excuse me, assurance, maybe insurance too, which is not a position of shame. Verse 32. I will run the course of your commandments and you shall enlarge my heart. Run here is to run speedily and has the idea of guarding something as well as you're running. Course is a road, a way of life, a specific way to live. And the course he's choosing, again, is the way of God's word. So simply put, he's saying, Lord, I'm gonna do what you say. I'm gonna live my life according to your word and I'm gonna make haste to keep your word. I'm gonna run the course that your word lays out for me. He's doing what Hebrews 12, one through three says, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so too the Lord has set the race before you and before me. He's laid out your course. In Ephesians 2.10 it says that he's foreordained works for us to walk in. Psalm 139.3 says that he winnows our path and that means that he just spreads it out before us. And then in that same Psalm 139, verse 16, David says, the Lord has already written our days. Now, I'm with David, the writer of Psalm 139, when he says in verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it, but I like it, right? My mind can't comprehend how the Lord does what he does. Isaiah said that the Lord's thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. 
So I don't know how he measures out my days. I don't know how he foreordains works for me to do and for you to do or how he's written all my days. But what we can do, we can and should do is choose to run his course, to walk in the things he has for us. And that is walking or running the course of his word that is already set before us from Genesis to Revelation. And then there's another wonderful encouragement or promise at the end of this verse. Look again at verse 32, please. He says, you will enlarge my heart. That's literally to make room or to open wide. So the question, do you want the Lord to open your heart wide in regard regard to himself and his word? Yes, yes we do. So then stay the course at all cost. Run your race with endurance. Keep your eyes on his word. And as Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the living word of God. And what you're going to find is the Lord's going to enlarge your heart. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. As we get into this next eight-verse section, we see the writer turning now to the Lord with a bit more vigor as he's finding relief from struggle. And this is a somewhat unique portion of Psalm 119 in that in each of these eight verses, we have something that doesn't occur anywhere else in this psalm. And that is that the writer asked the Lord in each verse to do something on his behalf. In 33, he says, teach me. In 34, he says, give me. 35, he says, make me. 36, he says, incline my heart. 37, turn, my, turn away my eyes and revive me. 38, establish your word to me. 39, turn away my reproach. And 40, revive me. What we see in each of these eight verses is the psalmist's total dependence upon God himself to act on his behalf. This man knows that unless the Lord does the work, unless the Lord move on his behalf, he will not prosper in his walk with God. Have you come to terms with the fact that apart from the Lord, his working, his supply, his filling, his moving, there's nothing you can do of eternal value? It's hard for our pride to hear, but it's true. In John 15, 5, Jesus says it very clear. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, For without me, you can do almost anything. No, 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 right? Without me, you can do absolutely nothing. Our intellect, apart from God, is nothing. Our talent, apart from the Lord, is nothing. Even our gifts, our callings, apart from him, are nothing. And so I want to encourage you and myself to take into your soul this truth that your spiritual growth and your fruit bearing are totally dependent upon your need to abide in Jesus, to stay close and connected to the heart of Jesus, to know that he must do the work on our behalf. Amen? All right, verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. Bear with me here. I'm going to define a few more words before we dig into this one. Teacher comes from a word meaning to flow as water, different than the other word. It also has the idea of simply pointing someone in the right direction. And way is the course of life again. And statutes refer to the actual written word of God. And keep is to guard or preserve. Now with that in mind, he's acknowledging that there's one course of life, there's one way to live, and that way is the way or the course of life that honors and obeys God's statutes, that obey his written word. And his desire is that the Lord would be the one pointing him in that direction through his written word. And so we too, we need to keep ourselves immersed in his statutes, in his written word, so that he can teach us, pointing us in the right direction. If we're not keeping ourselves in his word, we'll have a difficult time observing his direction. 
Acts 2.42 says that the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And that word steadfastly there means to be earnest towards something, to persevere in it, to be constantly diligent in it, to adhere closely to the written written word of God. So they were, and we should be, earnestly committed to the study and the keeping of God's written word, just like the psalmist who prays, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall keep it to the end. And then a quick note on the words, keep it to the end. This man wanted to finish well. And he knew that this would only happen if the Lord was his teacher, if the Lord was the one on whom he was dependent. And if you'll remain dependent upon him, you will also finish well. You'll keep his word to the end. Verse 34. Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Now, understanding here is the ability to discern, to perceive, same word as last time. And then keep here is the same word as well as verse 33, to guard something, to preserve it. But the word observe is interesting to me because it also means to guard and protect something in the sense of placing or keeping a hedge around it. So the prayer here that we can apply to our lives is, Lord, give me the ability to understand, to perceive your word. If you do that, Lord, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to guard it. If you'll give me understanding, I'll hedge myself about with, with that understanding. I'll surround myself in it with my whole heart, all that I am. So it's an observation. When we surround ourselves with something, we place a hedge around us. There's nothing that can come at us from any direction without going through that protection of the hedge, and that's the idea. We surround ourselves in the word of God as a means of protection from the world, the flesh, from error, from the enemy, etc. God's word fully guards our hearts and minds. And then notice the recurring theme here of asking the Lord to give him understanding. And we looked at that in verse 27. Here it is again. So just a reminder, let's be those who, when we read or hear the word, we also ask the Lord to give us understanding. And let's be sure not to take that lightly. It's all throughout this psalm because without his instruction, without the help of our tutor, the Holy Spirit, we won't see all that God has for us in his word. As Pastor Wills pointed out in the last few weeks, John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So may our prayer be, Lord, I want you to give me understanding and I'm gonna keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 35. He says, make me walk in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. So in saying make me walk, he's not saying force me. It means to cause me to bend, to guide me, to lead me towards a path. And commands speak of the authority of God's word. So he's acknowledging here that God's word is the authority in his life. And so based on that belief and based on that truth, he's asking the Lord to cause him to bend his heart to that authority because the writer delights in it. Delight, interestingly, also means to bend or incline but it also means to be pleased with something and to to desire it. So stay with me here. This thought may seem almost contradictory because on one hand, he's admitting that he can't do it without God's help. He says, you gotta make me, you gotta cause me, Lord. Well, at the same time, he's saying, oh, I delight in your word. He desires it, he even bends to it. He's even pleased with it. So if he delights in God's word, why does he need the Lord to cause him to walk in it? Well, listen to the Apostle Paul's similar struggle. This is after Paul had just talked to us about how the things that he wanted to do, he didn't, and the evil that he didn't want to do, he did. After that, he says in Romans 7, 22, for I delight in the law of God according to my inner man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. So even Paul had this conflict. He loved God's word. He delighted in it, yet he didn't always obey it. 
he needed God's help. So as a reminder here, just as the psalmist and just like Paul, who both delighted in God's word, but also needed God's help to walk in it, so do we. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to walk in accordance with God's word because our flesh does not want to subject to the spirit, even though we, in our inner man, delight in God's word. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 36, he says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Covetousness, as you know, it's dishonest gain. It's also wanting something that belongs to someone else. So he's asking the Lord to bend his heart to cause him to yield to God's testimonies, his testimonies being the things that speak of God's greatness, his character, his holiness, and so on, as opposed to the things that are things you would covet in your flesh. So this shows us that our man of God here likely had a bent, uh, at least for a moment, or maybe even a regular temptation towards covetousness. And notice he deals with that sinful attitude towards other stuff and perhaps worldly gain by comparing it to the testimonies of God, the things that actually are true gain, the things that we should covet after. In other words, Lord, I find myself desiring the things of the world. I've been valuing the things of the flesh. So Lord, incline my heart to the true riches. Incline my heart to your testimonies, the things that speak of your goodness, of your love, your character, your heart, your word. As an application, if you find your heart bending towards covetous, covetousness, don't let it defeat you. Instead, do as the psalmist does. Look to the testimonies of God. Look to his great riches and allow your heart to bend towards those things and away from covetousness. Verse 37. This verse connects with the covetousness of verse 36, so we're gonna read those two together. He says, um, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to covetousness. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. So by looking at here, it means that he's approving, he's beholding these things. He's gazing upon them with joy. And then, uh, well, you ever find yourself getting lost in things that are just useless? Sure. Maybe not even sinful stuff. Sinful stuff, yes, but maybe just some vain things, maybe some empty things. If so, you're in really good company because the writer of Psalm 119 had this conflict in his heart. But notice what he does once again. He calls out his covetousness by calling the things he covets worthless. He owns his desires. You know, that's really good and right for us to do. We should call out our sin for what it is. You should call out your sin. The truth is, the things that we covet, the flesh we desire, the recognition we seek, it's all worthless. And that word translated worthless can mean evil, ruinous, deceptive, lies and vanity. And isn't it interesting how we can place so much value on useless things, especially in our country. We place so much value on things that have no value. But notice there at the end of verse 37, he says, revive me according to your word. That's our word again for recovering, restoring, repair me. And why does he need reviving? Because covetousness sucks the life out of us. Desiring other people's stuff drains us. So as an encouragement, if you struggle with a heart that desires or longs for worthless things, if desiring the things of this world or the things of others has left you empty, ask the Lord to revive you and to turn your heart again to his ways as the psalmist does here. The Lord is faithful and he'll do it. Well, verse 38, he says, establish your word to your servant who's devoted to fearing you. Now, establish here means to rise. It has the idea of making something really clear. It means to endure 
to make good. Other translations use uh, reassure here or confirm or fulfill. So what he's asking the Lord to do is reassure him of the faithfulness of God's word, that the Lord would confirm for him all that he says in his word. Now, do you ever feel like you need the Lord to confirm his word to you, to reassure you that he's gonna keep his promises? The writer of Psalm 44, he found himself there. Psalm 44, 23 and 24 says, awake, why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? And David in Psalm 13, verse one is even more pointed. He says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, does the Lord forget us? No, but sometimes our hearts can't sense him. Sometimes it feels like he's abandoned us. And that's when we need to pray, Lord, establish your word to me. Reassure me by confirming your word to me. And then notice what else he adds here. He says, he's devoted to fearing the Lord. Now, devoted means he's loyal. He's given over to it. So he's committed to fearing God. In other words, even in times when he needs reassurance from the Lord, he chooses to stay committed to the fear of the Lord. But what does it mean to fear the Lord and what does it look like to be devoted to that fear? Stay with me here as we're gonna look at probably trying to connect a couple of dots here on the fear of God. Dot number one, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And that includes the evil of our own sin as well. Hold that thought. Now, Proverbs 1.28.30 says, and this is God's word to a fool. He says, then they, the fools, will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Verse 28, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and they despised my every rebuke. So they didn't choose to fear God. So fear of God is a choice that they could have made, but they didn't. So just to recap, number one, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And number two, we have to choose the fear of God. We must choose to hate our sin. You see that so far? Okay, all right. Say yes whether you do or not because I don't have any other notes to go along with a no. All right, here's what that looks like. When we're overwhelmed by or just tempted to sin, we have a choice to make. We can go with the feeling or the desire to sin and fulfill it, or we can choose to hate our sin at that moment. We can choose to hate our evil in spite of what we might feel like doing. Lots of examples of this in scripture. I'm gonna give you two. When Joseph was being pursued day after day by Potiphar's wife, she eventually grabs him and what does he do? He chooses the fear of the Lord. He runs. He chooses to hate sin. What did Paul tell Timothy to do when faced with youthful lust that war against the soul? Here's what he didn't say. Timothy, Wait till you feel like resisting temptation before you resist. No, he said, flee youthful lusts because a choice has to be made regardless of feelings. Those can be hard choices, but in making them, what you're doing is you're choosing the fear of the Lord. You're doing as the writer of Psalm 119 says here, regardless of what you may feel, you're walking committed to the fear of the Lord. He says, I am devoted to I am given over, I am committed to fearing you. Verse 39. He says, turn away my reproach which I dread, for your judgments are good. A few brief definitions and then we'll put it together. Turn away is um, 
to, to cover or deliver someone away from something. And reproach is shame. It's an important word for the rest of our study. Dread is to fear. It's not the same as the fear in verse 38, which is a deep reverence. This is an actual being afraid of something. So he's dealing with some shame, which causes him to be fearful. And one reason we might dread shame is when we're publicly shamed by our failures, that can be horribly embarrassing, right? We might also fear shame because it can completely destroy us if we live in it. It can end up bringing depression. Well, regardless of how shame is manifest in us, we deal with shame first by asking the Lord to take it away. Verse 39 again, he says, Lord, you turn away my reproach. So let's talk about how the Lord removes shame. Well, shame comes when we're guilty of something usually. And as we noted earlier, the Lord is the one who removes our guilt and our shame. And as we noted earlier, Jesus, though he was despised, he despised that shame, our shame that was heaped on him, Hebrews 12, he bore it nonetheless. Now, notice how the psalmist in dealing with shame, he's looking to God's judgments. I found that interesting. Verse 39 again, turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. In other words, he trusts that even though he feels shame, He knows that God judges righteously. God's judgments are good, he says, and he sees the Lord as the only one who can deal with his shame. Now, I realize that shame is something that so many believers deal with in the form of a guilty conscience. So many of us are beat relentlessly by the enemy in this area. Perhaps the enemy plagues you with thoughts of your past, relentlessly pounding your conscience with guilt. But there's a wonderful truth in Hebrews 9, 13 and 14 that speaks to this struggle of conscience. You don't need to turn there. He says in Hebrews 9, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrifices, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I love this one of my favorite verses. Do you know that Jesus' blood is sufficient to cleanse your conscience? There's no one here that doesn't apply to If we could wrap our hearts around this truth, we could be free of shame and guilt. You see, when Jesus took your sin on the cross, he did everything necessary at that moment to save you and to free you from sin's power, but also to free you from shame. You see, the Father's judgments are good, the psalmist says. He has judged that all of your sin be placed on his son, and therefore you are completely cleansed, even your conscience. Your part is to simply confess your sin to him and receive the benefit of a complete cleansing of conscience. There's no work you can do to earn it. Just repent and receive it. David says in Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity or the guilt of my sin. The Lord in Christ has taken your shame. May you receive that truth deep into your heart tonight. Well, Our final verse, verse 40. He says, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me in your righteousness. Precepts speak of regulating behavior. One scholar put it this way. A precept points to a particular instruction of the Lord as of one who cares about detail. And the writer's saying to the Lord that he longs for the word, for the individual promises of God. And why? because he wants to be revived. This is the same request as verse 37, where he asked the Lord to recover and restore him. In the context, this is connected to the shame we just mentioned. So just listen to those two verses together again, 39 and 40. Turn away my reproach, or my shame, which I dread, for your judgments are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me 
according to your righteousness. You can see how the reviving is connected to that reproach. Well, shame zaps our vitality, doesn't it? It really does. If the enemy can get us to live in the realm of shame, we'll all but lose our effectiveness. It's very hard to share with someone of our freedom in Christ if we walk in shame. So he says, revive me in your righteousness. In other words, he knows that his own righteousness is filthy rags. If he's to be revived, it'll be according to God's righteousness. So how is a person justified before the cross? Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. Speaking of Abraham's righteousness, which was even before the law, Paul says of him, the just shall live by faith, Galatians 3.11. All of that to say, our writer knew, as did the other Old Testament saints, that righteousness came by faith in God alone, just as it does under the new covenant. So it makes sense that our writer would say, I'm dealing with shame. You remove it from me, Lord, in your righteousness. Revive me, restore me, remove my shame according to your righteousness. Well, as we begin to wrap up our thoughts and the worship team comes up, in closing, if you deal with shame from your past, whether that's the distant past or the recent past, maybe you're ashamed about the way you've been today, tonight or last night. Know that you don't have to walk in that shame. You do not have to. You don't have to receive the enemy's accusations. When shame comes, repent of any sin you may be holding on to and receive God's word to you that he carried your sin, your guilt, your shame on the cross because he loves you and walk in freedom by knowing that your righteousness is given to you in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Speaking of the Lord, for he, God, made him Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Once you've come to Jesus in repentance, you need to know that shame has no part in you. May you walk free of shame, amen? Lord, thank you for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your righteousness. Lord, we thank you for the promises of your word that that free us from depression. Lord, and we see how the world has offered so many solutions to discouragement. Lord, would you turn our hearts to your word that we would find our answers in you, that we would find our hearts' desires met in the yielding to your word. So Lord, I ask that, that your spirit would write on our hearts the things that you have for each one of us tonight. Lord, thank you once again for your word. We love you in Jesus' name.